When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came to him, and when Jesus, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowded against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still some speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to him, Do not be, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talithia kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. On a cold fall afternoon in 1982, 78,000 football fans crowded into the University of Wisconsin Stadium to watch their beloved Badgers face off against Michigan State. The game wasn't going so well for Wisconsin, but something odd kept occurring. At sudden random points throughout the game, the home crowd would burst into cheers and applause, even as the opponent was scoring touchdowns. Well, the reason is because at that same time, Wisconsin's Major League Baseball team, the Milwaukee Brewers, were playing in Game 4 of the World Series, and many of the fans were tuning in by portable radio. You can imagine how odd this was for the opposing team, and yet there were fans there who were responding to the news of victory beyond what was playing out in front of their eyes. In our story this morning, we're going to discover the secret of living with faith and joy even in the face of hopeless circumstances because our hearts are tuned to a different frequency. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. As you've learned by now, Mark is famous among the gospel authors for his brevity. But what's interesting is that in our passage today, Mark is verbose. 
Matthew reports the same story in nine verses, Luke in 17, but Mr. Brief Mark takes 23 verses to report this story. Clearly, he wants us to lean in and to pay attention. So let's do it. Here's what I think is the main idea in these verses. Jesus prevails when other sources of hope fail. And it costs nothing except bold faith. Jesus prevails when other sources of healing fail. And it costs nothing except bold faith. Three points that I think arise right out of this passage. A petition, an, in, in, an interruption, and a resurrection. Number one, a, a petition. We'll see that in verses 21 to 24. Number two, an interruption, which actually kind of interrupts verse 24. So we'll see that in verse 24 to verse 34. And then third, a resurrection. A petition, an interruption, and a resurrection. First, a petition. Verse 21, look there. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. So pause for a second. He, that, this means he has returned, remember, from his excursion into Gentile territory where he went all the way across the lake to establish his first Gentile, that is non-Jewish convert and Gentile missionary. Now he's back home on the other side of the lake in his home base of Capernaum. And we read here in verse 21, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. This is not what we expect to read. This is a startling picture. Maybe to those of us who are really familiar with our Bibles, we just kind of glaze over this kind of thing, but think about what Mark has reported just happened. This fellow Jairus, was a leader, a ruler in the local Jewish synagogue, which means he would have been a man highly regarded among the community, a man of means and connections and influence, and yet here he is prostrate, bankrupt, before the sandals of this new Galilean rabbi. We've got to, to realize that for a synagogue ruler, to publicly out himself like this, to bow before Jesus. The, the one who has uh, sparked such controversy and division among the religious establishment, Jairus' own peers, this would have been almost certainly his last resort. But Jairus is beyond the point of saving face. So he's on his face, desperate. And the reason, the reason he's behaving in this undignified manner is because he's a dad. Verse 23, Jairus pleaded earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Literally, the word is, she's in the last gasp. He's saying, Jesus, she's not in intensive care. She is at the very end of hospice care. Please, now come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. 
By, by the way, notice the contrast here. We've seen this all throughout Mark, at how these stories are stitched together. Notice the contrast between Jairus' request here and the townspeople's request on the other side of the lake in the previous scene. Verse 17, please, Jesus, go. Verse 23, please come. Well, how is he going to respond? I mean, is Jesus going to seize this chance like I would have? Is he going to seize this chance to scold this synagogue leader who's surely led many Jews astray? This guy is friendly with the Pharisees. Is Jesus going to put him in his place? No. Because what captivates Jesus is not this man's past. It's not those previous associations and connections It's the sight of desperate faith. What captivates the heart of Jesus is the sight of desperate faith. Verse 24, so Jesus went with him. Now, to read this story well, you've got to read it with the sound in your mind of a clock ticking louder and louder with every verse you read. Because this is an emergency situation. Every second counts. The question we should be asking at this point in verse 24 is, are they even going to make it back to Jairus' house in time? Point number two, an interruption an interruption. Look at verse 24. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. I mean, just imagine the frantic kind of forward-leaning rush of this crowd heading toward Jairus's house. Verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. What? I mean, just out of nowhere, thrust into the foreground of our story, is a person to slow him down. This woman, it seems, is suffering from a menstrual disorder that causes her to hemorrhage blood, which, according to Jewish law, has made her ceremonially unclean. And this is a permanent condition. For 12 long years, she has been unclean and therefore unfit to worship in Jairus' synagogue. One commentator puts it like this, quote, her discharge of blood causes her to be discharged from society because it makes her a major bearer of impurity. She is therefore similar to the leper as one suffering from uncleanness and is excluded from normal social relations. She's physically broken, socially defiled, financially destitute. Look at verse 26. She has suffered, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She's exhausted all her options. Every last effort and resource that she had just to try to get a little bit of help and hope, and she has nothing to show for it. She's bankrupt on every level. It seems, according to Mark, that the physician's cures have actually made her disease worse. The physicians have inflicted just as much pain as the disease itself. 
Here's what we got to understand as modern readers trying to climb our way back into this first century story. We read this story and our hearts go out to this woman. But there would have been little sympathy on this dirt road heading toward Jairus' house. There would have been little sympathy back then for a woman like this. I mean, we know that many first century Jews had not internalized the lesson of Job. That personal suffering cannot always be traced back to personal sin. We know they hadn't internalized this because of places like John 9, where Jesus' own disciples say, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So with a woman like this, she wouldn't have been the object of sympathy. She would have been the object of suspicion. People, people would have seen her medical condition as morally suspect. They would have tried to trace this 12-year-long suffering back to something she had done to deserve it. So if we're going to read this story well, we need to see her like some today might view a person, a woman with, with an STD. This was the way people would have thought of the bleeding woman. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. So the desperate woman has a desperate plan. She slinks up behind Jesus and just thinks, if I, if I can just reach out and touch the hem of his cloak, then, then I'll get healed and then can just vanish back into the sea of anonymous faces without anyone knowing of my unlawful contact. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. The plan worked! Like, her plan actually worked. Just imagine what, what she was feeling as health and strength began to surge through every part of her body just as she was executing step two of the plan, vanishing, it failed. Jesus stops on a dime. He stops following Jairus, the VIP, and he turns around. Verse 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, what do we make, what should we make of this sensation that Jesus experienced? The sensation of losing power, being drained of power. And what do we make of his apparent ignorance? I mean, we've been singing songs to this guy. He has to turn around and say, who touched me? Well, it may be that Jesus here is, is operating out of his human nature. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. One person, two natures. And while these two natures are inseparable, they are also distinct. In other words, his humanity wasn't deified and his deity wasn't humanized. And perhaps here, Jesus is operating out of 
his human nature, which is another way of saying he's not leaning into, he's not accessing his divine ability to know all things. We think of other passages where Jesus says, not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour of his own return. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that Jesus is not looking around who touched me because he's ignorant, because he's unsure, but because he cares. I mean, I kind of think of Genesis chapter 3, God playing a little hide-and-seek. Adam and Eve are crouching in the bushes with sticky fruit juice on their chins, and God says, where are you? Not because he didn't know, but because precisely because he did know where they were. He did know what they needed, even though they didn't. And so God graciously summoned them, beckoned them out of the shadows into the light. Well, regardless of why Jesus asks the question, the disciples think it's a dumb one. Verse 31, you see the people crowding around you, the disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? Like, how are we supposed to know everyone's touching you? Plus, what are you doing stopping? This important man needs you. Jesus, don't you know the difference between a a chronic condition and an acute one? This woman has bled for 12 years. She can wait two more hours. They didn't care for the interruption. And the reason is they didn't understand it. It's just worth asking ourselves, how do you view interruptions? How do you view interruptions to your schedule? Do you view them as if you are sovereign over that schedule and that it ought never be interrupted? I mean, just notice how unflappable Jesus is in the face of interruptions. I mean, at least he's not sleeping through it this time like he did on the boat. But interruptions didn't throw him off balance. They didn't send him into a tailspin of panic. And this is a good reminder for us to remember that God is sovereign and good even over the interruptions he sends into our, our lives. He designs them and he deploys them to teach us and remind us how little control we actually have, which means that as his followers, we ought to always inscribe our plans in pencil. Back to the scene. Jesus is not in a hurry. You can just imagine what Jairus is thinking right now, just standing there watching this unfold. Jesus is not in a hurry because he doesn't just want this woman to get what she came for, the healing, and be able to move on. Because while she maybe was just after a something like just the healing, he wants her. He wants her. And so he summons her out of the shadows, not to embarrass her, but to enlist her, to enlist her as a follower. Sinclair Ferguson helpfully points out 
quote, unless she realized that it was his power, not his clothes, which had healed her, she would remain diseased spiritually, even though healed physically. She would forever see Jesus superstitiously as a healer, rather than intelligently and truly as a savior. In other words, Jesus wants her to leave this encounter with him, not simply seeing him as a source of power, but knowing him as the Lord of love. Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. The plan failed. And she cannot evade his searching gaze. And so she comes and she falls prostrate, exposed before him and all the crowd. She's right to tremble with fear. Not only because of the way she would have been viewed in that culture, which we talked about, but she's right to tremble with fear because she is in the presence of the Holy One. And she's unclean or at least was for 12 years until like 12 seconds ago. As careful readers of this story, we, we should be hearing an echo. Verse 22, remember that? What did Jairus do? Jairus came and fell at his feet. Verse 33, the woman came and fell at his feet. Two totally different lives have converged on the dirt before one set of feet. The commentator David Garland captures this contrast well. Quote, Jairus is a male, a leader of the synagogue. As a man of distinction, he has a name. Jairus has honor and can openly approach Jesus with a direct request. By contrast, the woman is nameless and unclean. She is walking pollution. The only two things these persons share in common, rather the only thing these two persons share in common, the only thing they have in common is that they have both heard about Jesus, they desperately desire healing, and they have run out of options. And so, both exhibit unreasonable faith. Of course, in hindsight, I put that in quotes, unreasonable faith. But this kind of faith would have looked unreasonable to anyone looking on. A faith that dares to simply believe that coming into contact with Jesus will be sufficient to heal. Verse 23, put your hands on my daughter. Contact with him is going to be sufficient. Verse 28, if I just touch his clothes, if you just touch my daughter, if I can just touch his clothes. And then the same commentator concludes, Mark's dovetailing of these stories. So notice how Mark has used his little sandwich technique, right? He begins talking to us about Jairus, then he inserts a different story about a different person, and then we'll return to Jairus in point three. But Mark is deliberately dovetailing these stories, quote, to reveal that being male, being ritually pure, holding a high religious office, or being a man of means provide no advantage in approaching Jesus. 
and being female, impure, dishonored, and destitute are no barrier to receiving help. In God's kingdom, the nobodies become somebody. But the drama isn't over. What is Jesus going to say to this woman who has broken code and has polluted everyone she's rubbed up against in her effort to get to Jesus? Verse 34, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You want to know something pretty cool? In all the Gospels, not just Mark, in all the Gospels, this is the only time Jesus addresses someone as daughter. Of all the women he interacts with in his earthly ministry, he reserves this tender title for a nameless outcast. He talks to her. I mean, she's the ultimate outsider, but he talks to her like she's the ultimate insider, a part of his own family. She's his daughter. This is the logic. She's his daughter. Of course she has the right to touch him. And just as we saw with the leper in chapter 1, she doesn't transfer uncleanness to him. It's the reverse. Remember the main idea sentence? I'd be surprised if you did. I had to look it up myself. But you remember the main idea sentence from the leper story? You can't make Jesus dirty, but he can make you clean. You can't get Jesus dirty, but he can make you clean. And we see that again playing out right here. And remember I said that singling her out, see, it would have been her worst fear for Jesus to do what he did. Turn around, call her out, summon her out of the shadows, all these all these eyes on her, eyes of suspicion and judgment. But singling her out was actually a, a, an act of love because if you think about it, if Jesus hadn't done that, she may have left healed. As I said earlier, she may have left knowing, okay, he is as powerful as I thought, but she would not have been publicly restored to her community. That's what he does here. No wonder he, said, he gives a benediction. Go in peace. That's what I say at the end of every worship service here at RCBC. Go in peace. Live under the smile of the God who has seen you and restored you. Look again at the beginning of verse 34. What do we make of Jesus' explanation that your faith has healed you? Well, it's helpful to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Touching me healed you. Or my cloak has healed you. As if it's magic. I mean, many false teachers under the guise of being faith healers have gotten a lot of mileage out of verses like this. As if healing can be reduced to a recipe. But Jesus' point here is, is not that there was some kind of intrinsic power to her faith point was that her faith, however weak, feeble it was, was connected to, was directed to the right object. 
See, Jesus praises even imperfect faith when it's directed to the right object. Maybe an illustration will help. Just imagine that you are an Israelite and you're in Egypt and the plagues have just wound down and you've sacrificed uh, the, the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and then you're heading toward the Red Sea. Moses parts the waters. The Egyptians are hot on your heels. And imagine you, you have two friends. Okay, we'll, we'll call them Josiah and Asher. The water parts. And this is the highlight of Josiah's life. Josiah thinks this is the coolest thing ever. He sees the walls of water and he puts his hands up and is like, our God is awesome. And he starts marching his way through, just enjoying, reveling in the greatness and the glory and the grandeur of this God. But his buddy Asher, ah, he's not so sure. Asher Asher's freaking out, if, if we're honest. I mean, Asher wishes he had Josiah-like faith, but Asher doesn't. Asher sees the walls of water, and all he can think about is he kind of tiptoes his way through is, when are they going to come in? When are they going to come in? We're not going to make it. But he puts one foot in front of the other, and here's the question. Which of the two, Josiah or Asher, was delivered on that day? course both because we are not saved by the strength of our faith but by the object of our faith speaking of jewish names <laughs> i hope you haven't forgotten about our friend jairus this whole time he's just been standing there waiting sweating Panicking. Can you imagine how he interpreted this delay? I mean, I, I'm not going to linger here, but, but just notice that just as we shouldn't begrudge interruptions, as we thought about earlier, we also shouldn't misinterpret divine delays. Because one of the lessons of this story is that the Lord works in the waiting. That's why point two is the longest, because it's the main section of this story. God working in the waiting, which is also where we grow. All right, a petition, an interruption, and third and finally, a resurrection. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Why bother who? teacher can almost hear the subtext or what, what we would call today a subtweet, right? It's, yeah, and only a teacher. I mean, yeah, the guy can do some miraculous stuff on certain days, but he's out of his league when it comes to facing down death. And so they look at Jairus and they say, Cyrus, we're so sorry, but it's over. It's a lost cause. Now, 
Now we need mourners. We don't need healers. And I love how Jesus doesn't even dignify their unbelief with a response. What does he do? With majestic calmness, he just simply turns and looks at this father who has just received this devastating news. And he says, verse 36, don't be afraid, just believe. Now, you may expect me as a preacher to stand up here and say, and we ought to say the same, but, but let's just pause for a second and admit that sounds kind of callous. It really does sound like the kind of pat answer. As if Jesus just, you know, swung by the Christian bookstore and bought a, uh, I know those don't exist anymore, but just bear with me, uh, you know, and, and bought a bookmark at the, at the cash register and just handed him a bookmark that just said, don't be afraid, just believe, even though he's weeping in the dirt. But actually, it's not a pat answer. It's, it's, it's a deeper invitation. He's inviting Jairus into deeper intimacy with himself. See, when Jairus first approached him, his faith, we talked about, was desperate. He wouldn't have come to Jesus in front of all his Pharisee friends unless his faith was desperate and it was his last resort. But it was still, in a sense, reasonable because the logic was, I've seen him work wonders before. I've seen him heal people before. Maybe he'll do it again. But right here, there's nothing reasonable about this. We're no longer dealing with a fever. We are dealing with a corpse to be told to, hey, keep trusting, now must have felt insulting. But Jesus says, don't succumb to despair, Jairus. Stick with me. Just stick with me. I mentioned the Red Sea earlier. There, there's actually an old rabbinic tradition that interprets that story by saying that it wasn't until the Israelites had waded into the water up until their nostrils that God parted the sea and exposed the dry ground. Now, it's an extra-biblical reading, but it's an utterly biblical picture of faith. We don't wait to see if God parts the waters and then step out in faith. No, faith is stepping out, even when it looks like, even when circumstantially it looks like God has forgotten about us, we step out on the basis of his promises, knowing he can do the impossible. Verse 37, Jesus, Jesus didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. The, these weren't just friends and family, but professional mourners uh, that were common at ancient funerals. Verse 39, Jesus went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Verse 40, so they all believed. No. But they laughed at him. I mean, can you, hear, can you hear their derisive chuckles? The mourners have become the mockers. But the Messiah is not deterred. Verse 40, 
after he put them all out. You know what's interesting? That's the same verb for exercising a demon. After he put them all out. There will be no miracles for mockers. Jesus took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with them and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talithakum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Remember, Mark is writing for a Roman audience. So he quotes Jesus in his native tongue of Aramaic, which I think lends historical credibility to this account. But he also has his non-Jewish readers in mind, so he translates it for us. And the words, little girl, get up, they're also not what you would make up. They're so tender and, frankly, plain. There isn't some elaborate incantation, some mysterious mumbo-jumbo. He just simply utters an ordinary phrase in this girl's heart language. These would have been familiar words, words that her mom would have woken her up with on an ordinary morning, which is why Jesus had said, the child is not dead, but asleep. In other words, death is as weak as sleep when I enter the room. Mark wants us to see that Jesus not only has authority over nature, demons, disease, but also that for him, raising a corpse is as simple as getting someone up from a nap. Verse 42, immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Why does Mark add that parenthetical comment? Verse 42, well, because it's not the first time we've seen the number 12. It's almost as if he's saying, 12 years ago, when this little girl started breathing, this other woman started bleeding. And who could have foreseen that 12 years later, their lives would intersect on this dramatic day. Verse 43, Jesus gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. I can't help myself. I I know I point this out. It feels like in every sermon, but there are so many little details in Mark's gospel that just have the ring of authenticity. I mean, if this were a Hollywood script, I guarantee that the second half of verse 43 would have been removed from the script. There would have been something more triumphant and fitting for such a moment. But here, after, his, after raising someone from the dead, his words are, you ready? Go get her a snack. It's not something you would make up unless that's what he actually said. Jesus healed this woman and he healed this girl But it's just worth noting in passing that we know all too painfully, even in our five months as a church, we've already had two deaths here in this church. That's not even counting Brady's mom that I prayed for earlier and people outside of our church. We've already had two deaths in this church in just five months. We know that God 
doesn't always heal. Martin Luther's daughter, Magdalena, had just turned 14 when she was stricken with the plague. One historian recounts, quote, brokenhearted, Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from the pain. When she had died and the carpenters were nailing the lid of her coffin, Luther screamed out, hammer away! On doomsday, she'll rise again. See, the reason Luther could have such otherworldly hope, and the reason you can have such otherworldly hope, is because you know that the ultimate meaning of Mark 5 is that this little girl's resurrection is meant to point beyond itself to the day when God will loosen the vice grip of death on all who are in Christ, in Christ. In her recent book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, excellent book, I would commend to you all, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, Rebecca McLaughlin writes, quote, how do we see Jesus through this 12-year-old girl's eyes? We see him as we'll each see Jesus one day if we put our trust in him. When Jesus calls us out of death into everlasting life with him, we'll see him for the first time face to face. Jesus tells this girl's parents to give her something to eat. But when he calls our long dismembered bodies back to life, he'll be the master of a feast that will continue to eternity. One day, likely when our bodies have eroded and our names have been erased, Jesus will call us back to life with the same power and tenderness he showed the bleeding woman and the dead little girl. In just one chapter, we've seen Jesus face down a torrential storm, a demonized maniac, a diseased woman, and a dead girl. Mark doesn't want it to be lost on us that in the presence of this man, no one is a lost cause. No one is a lost cause in the presence of this man. And just as Jesus should have been made unclean by this bleeding woman and should have been made unclean by touching the dead girl, he's no ordinary man. In fact, his love is so great that he's going to go on and trade places with people like them. He's going to bleed for this woman and die for this girl. And three days later, he will emerge from death's jaws on the other side. And so will you if you have put your faith in him. Listen, I don't care how bleak your circumstances may appear, what's playing out on the field in front of you. I don't care how much loss you feel like you're witnessing. You have plenty to cheer about. We have plenty to cheer about as we tune our ears and our eyes to a different frequency and we can hear the, the crackling sound of victory in progress, the, the sound of our Savior saying, don't lose heart, keep believing. The sound of our Savior saying, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, your power cannot be fathomed. Your compassion cannot be measured. Lord, in your presence, storms subside, demons flee, disease surrenders, death has its own funeral. Lord, we are amazed that a God like you, a God as powerful as you, would stoop to love us so tenderly. Help us to put our faith, not in our faith, but to put our faith in Christ who overcomes the world. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.